I'd say that my immediate goals in psychology are to really better understand what capacities non-humans have. And that could be their emotional states, their capacity for empathy, their capacity for love, their capacity for cognitive abilities um, in all these different aspects because they're worlds unto themselves that are that we don't understand. Hello again, and welcome to Preoccupied. I'm Maddie. And I'm Zenon. Today we're talking to Dr. Francine Dolans at the University of Michigan-Dearborn. She studies animal cognition in primate species. Something we're going to talk about a little bit in this episode is behavioral ecology. And basically, this is how the environment affects animal behavior. In other words, you know, how external stress is shaped, how animals behave. So we are motivated to find food, make whoopee, and avoid assholes, right? So... Um, in order to do this, there are kind of two categories of behavior. The first would be instinctive. And this is something that I feel like we all are kind of more familiar with in the realm of animals. Oh, they like rely on their instincts, you know. And so a really good example that I saw from a Harvard biologist was that beavers will instinctively build their dams. That's something that's just coded into them. They know how to do it. But then the other category of behavior is the behavior that is learned. And this is what is really, really interesting and a little bit psychological as well about behavioral ecology. So uh, continuing with this example to kind of juxtapose instinctive and learned, when beavers see that the water is stronger than the dam, you know, things are kind of getting through, beavers will use mud and goop to fill in any gaps. So this is something that is kind of conditional on the environment that they adapt to in order to survive. So just like animal behavior is instinctive and learned, there are a lot of different factors that influence how humans think as well. And we talk about this as embodied cognition, the idea of how your body affects how you think, which might seem a little counterintuitive at first, right? You usually think of cognitive processes as just occurring in your brain. Right. When you're thinking a lot, you're in your head. Right. Very Cartesian, the separation of the body and the mind. Right. Exactly. But this idea of embodied cognition, which really is relatively recent. I mean, it was first brought up in cognitive science in 1975, tries to explain why we talk and think in certain ways by drawing on physiological explanations. An example of this might be that when someone is angry, they describe themselves as being riled up, right? Or their temper is up, always in an upward direction. When someone's talking to them, they might say to calm down or to settle down, right? One might think of these as just metaphors that arise through language, right? Just kind of random and arbitrary as to where they come from. But they persist across several unrelated languages in these same directions, so psychologists wonder, what the hell's going on here? The theory that they come up with is that because when someone gets angry, blood rushes up to your head and, you know, you get red in the face, right? That movement of warmth upwards causes us to associate anger with the upward direction. And that so that's, so crazy. it is, that such simple things follow from, I mean, just facts of physiology. And this carries over to all sorts of different areas, all the way from considering affection to be the same as warmth, right? You're warming up to someone. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Coming from learned associations in infancy from being held close and associating warmth with affection. And then there are more that they've studied experimentally. So for example, experimenters asked participants to consider um, whether countries were important, whether currencies were valuable. And they gave all participants the same countries and currencies, right? 
the only thing that they varied was the weight of the clipboard that the information was on. Oh my gosh. I just know the next thing you're about to say is going to be so ridiculous. Go ahead. When the participants (laughs) held heavier clipboards, they considered the countries to be more important and more powerful and the currencies to be more valuable. So we, we associate weight and like weighty matters, right, are important. That's mm. a heavy dis- topic of discussion, right? So it's all about how we take these physical realities and translate them into the metaphors that we talk with in everyday life. That's something that's so, you would think, would be so small, you know, but to find a significant, significant difference, that's just so crazy. Another experiment. So they showed participants a composite face built up of male and female features, such that there was not really any clear cues as to whether it was a man's face or a woman's face, right? Participants were asked either to squeeze like a a squishy, soft stress ball or like a firm ball, maybe like um, like a a pool ball or something like that, Mm -hmm. right? When they squeezed the soft ball, they were more likely to think the face was female. When they squeezed the hard ball, they were more likely to think that the face was male. That is so crazy. You know, I do just wonder how many times just in our day-to-day lives this affects our perception. Oh, it has to be everywhere. I mean, because it builds up such a complex web of associations, right? So like... Maybe that there is because of um, societal gender roles, right? And what emotions we associate with men and women. And then what feelings we associate with those emotions and how that carries over to how we perceive gender, which carries over to how we perceive each other. And it also just kind of goes to show you how naturally we think symbolically. I think that that is so cool. It really is. One last example, and we'll move on to our next topic. So these participants were given a short reading or were asked to think about something. And the subject of this consideration or this reading would either be a a good deed, so maybe helping someone in need or volunteering, or a bad deed. So the examples they give are cheating on a test or adultery. The participants who read about bad deeds were more likely to ask for or use... um, like a hand sanitizing wipe after the experiment was over because we consider morality to correlate with cleanliness and purity. And I think we'll link in the description, this scientific American article that just goes so far into all of this in case you're interested. (laughs) And I wonder Maddie, just how all of this thought about morality and purity, right? And thinking that cleanliness is morality might lead into how we think about animals, such as the primates that Dr. Dolan's researches. And what primates does she research? In fact, what even is a primate? Well, let's think about it. So some characteristics of primates are five fingers, thumbs, fingernails, similar dental makeup, and pretty big heads in proportion to their bodies. They've got big brains. So a couple of the primates we're going to be talking about today are bonobos, chimps, and gorillas. So bonobos are actually the primate closest to humans. And I learned recently they can actually grow to be four feet tall on two legs. And they just look like little people roaming around. And they are also the most genetically like humans, sharing 98.7% of the same DNA and being super duper smart. They are only found in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, and they use tools, much like humans do. And then uh, there's also chimpanzees, chimps, which we are much more familiar with. They are also very, very similar to us, and they also use tools. And then there are gorillas who are really, really powerful and also use tools. And all three of these great apes that I've mentioned use tools, are capable of learning sign language, which almost makes us wonder, you know, what does it really mean to be human? 
especially because there's one more great ape species that you didn't list there, and that is the one that maybe we're most familiar with, Homo sapiens. Humanity. Tricky, tricky. Yep. Taxonomically, we are in the same category as all of these animals. And that really is one of the questions that researchers like Dr. Dolans get to ask, is what does it mean to be human? And because all of these species are so closely related, there are a lot of applications of research on bonobos, chimpanzees, gorillas, to human problems. One of these that is especially relevant to Dr. Dolan's research is developmental topographic disorientation. And that's a disorder where people are unable to construct mental maps. So maybe if you think about the city you live in and think about, okay, over here's the grocery store, over here's the post office, here's the Tim Hortons or the Starbucks, right? You can probably think of what direction you need to go in to get from one to the other. And even if you haven't taken the exact route from one to the other before, you could probably figure out what direction you need to drive in until you kind of see where it is, right? Right. Kroger is farther north than Meyer, <laughs> so on and so forth. Exactly. So maybe if you've driven from your house to Meyer before and your house to Kroger before, and you know they're on the same road, you could drive from Meyer to Kroger because you right. can construct that image in your head of where those are. So... There are people who can't do that, and that's a disorder called developmental topographic disorientation. The only way they can remember how to get from one place to another is to remember the exact route they take. So how far do I go on this road? When do I turn? Then I go this far on this road, then I turn, then I go this far on this road, then I turn. That's the only way they can remember to get from one place to another, because they can't construct that mental map. So giving directions must just be a real big pain in the rear. Yeah. So how this applies to Dr. Dolan's research is that she studies these mental maps in non-human primates. And this research, to build up these theories about how spatial cognition works at the most basic level, at a level even before higher level cognitive processes evolved, that research can apply to people who struggle with this. And as we kind of think about navigating physical spaces thinking about how to remember how to get from A to B. Something else that researchers like Dolan's who work with animals use somewhat often is a water maze, the Morris Water Navigation Task. And this kind of focuses on spatial learning. It'll make sense in a second why that is. So basically, you put an animal, usually like a rat, into a pool of water, like, you know, like six foot six-foot pool of water, uh, three feet deep, six feet wide kind of thing. You record how long it takes them to find the platform that will allow them to get out of the water and relax a little bit. And basically you do this a couple of times and in most normal rats, you'll see that each time they go into the water, the time it takes them to find that platform will go down because they're starting to form a memory of where it is and how to get there. So how this relates to animal cognition and to the spatial cognition that Dr. Dolan's research is, is that if rats can only navigate using this sort of turn-by-turn method of direction, then if you were to block their most commonly used path, they would be just completely lost. They would have to start over on figuring out where everything is. They'd have to figure out an entirely new path and memorize that, right? Or if rats can form these mental maps, like primates can, like humans can, then maybe they would be able to reason out a different path, even if their normal path is blocked. And it turns out experimentally that when you block their path, they are able to find another path pretty quickly from that mental map that they've created of that maze. One more thing that we just want to mention, so you're familiar with the concept when it comes up in the interview, is Weber's Law. And that is an early discovery in the psychology of sensation and perception. And it tries to quantify the level of difference between one stimulus and another stimulus that you can notice. So they call it a just noticeable difference because it's just barely enough to be noticeable. So this might be a change in volume of a sound 
or the change in brightness of a light. And um, what this law is, is that the just noticeable difference between two stimuli is something of a ratio from one stimulus to the other. Now that we've given you a little crash course so that, you know, hopefully we can all keep up with all the awesome stuff that Dr. Dolans has to share with us, let's turn it over to Dr. Dolans. All right, so we're here today at the University of Michigan-Dearborn with Dr. Francine Dolans. Uh, welcome to Preoccupied, Dr. Dolans. Thank you, and thank you for asking me to be here. And I'm really curious to go through this process with you and to learn more about what you're asking both me and other professors. Definitely, yeah, and we're really looking forward to getting to hear about your experience and, um, and about your research. So to start off, could you briefly describe your background in education? Uh, yes, okay. So I have an undergraduate degree in biology, um, which is an honors degree as well. It was done in England at the University of Sussex. And my major, um, what they call what you read um, there, um, was in behavioral ecology and evolutionary theory, so studying animal behavior. Um, and then in Britain, you don't need to get a master's to do a PhD, so I went straight from my undergraduate degree to my PhD. And I was in a psychology department just because that's where the primate unit was. <laughs> so um, I went there to study primates and to study something about animal consciousness. And um, when I went there, I knew nothing really about primates, so I learned a lot about primates. and. Um, and a lot about um, how to keep them in captivity because I was working with captive animals, captive primates. And I did my PhD initially focusing on um, environmental enrichment and shifted from environmental enrichment to spatial cognition as it relates to how animals experience their, their captive environments. Very cool. So how did that process of very biology-focused, animal-focused lead into now doing research that um, kind of traces or works together with psychology? So psychology is biological, um, so its origins are philosophy and biology. Um, and to me, that's kind of a perfect combination, giving us the freedom to ask lots of really interesting philosophical questions and then going out and exploring them in the real world, um, both in a, in a biological sense, but also in a psychological sense. My, my undergraduate degree, looking at animals in, um, in their ecology and how they experience their worlds and what did they need to survive and how did they evolve, how do they adapt to their environments, um, and especially the adaptations. Um, those tell us something about their sort of longitudinal lifespans or their species histories, but what happens on a day-to-day -day basis is really interesting. You know, how do they adapt on a day-to-day -day basis and what do they have to experience? So they experience dynamic changes all the time. There's always challenges in their environments. Um, and as they experience those challenges, how do they cope with them? How do they learn to cope with them? And the ones that don't cope will not survive, right? So the ones who do cope, they're constantly changing and learning and changing their behavior and learning more. And the question is, how do they do that? You know, and that's really a psychological question. It's biological, but it's also psychological. So my area overlaps with um, how do you how do you relate the psychological, I'll call them mechanisms, I don't like the word mechanisms very much, but mechanisms or facilities, capabilities, with the, um, what the environment affords those animals or those individuals. And um, when you put those together, you get a kind of mix of psychology and behavioral ecology, which I think is really interesting. And you can sometimes look at that through species-specific 
um, characterizations. Sometimes you can look at it through um, genetic populations. So sometimes you can look at the actual genetic lineage of individuals. Um, so you can look at what kind of personalities do individuals have? Are those personalities heritable? Does that allow them to survive better in that environment? That isn't research I do, but I think it's really interesting. Um, but so, so there's all different avenues of, of looking at the relationships of psychology and biology. Yeah, so it sounds like that field spans really all sorts of different kind of subfields and that a lot of that work comes into unifying like comparative psychology, evolutionary psychology, cognitive psychology, and sort of how that applies to an animal's experience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So what was it that led you to the specific graduate program that you chose? So when I was an undergraduate, I read, I, I knew I wanted to do something with animals. Um, and at first I thought about going to vet school and then I decided not to because animals don't like vets when they go to their offices and I didn't want to be the person who animals hated. And I wasn't really that keen on seeing just like one sick animal after another in general. It didn't seem like a very, I, I'm really happy vets are there and I use them for my pets, but I didn't want to be one in the end. Um, but what I decided was I wanted to look at whole animals and um, how do they how do they see their world? That was just really interesting to me. Um, could you get inside their mind in a way? And um, so how did I get there? So I read a paper when I was an undergraduate, and it was a paper by Barb Smuts, who is now a retired professor from the University of Michigan, but she was a professor of psychology and anthropology um, here at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And I think she wrote this soon after she finished her PhD or her postdoc work, and she'd been studying baboons, and she was looking at their um, social relationships, and she looked at them and she said to herself, I know because I have now know Barb and she's told me this, but you know, she said, they look like they're friends, like they're, they have friends. And she started to look at this in this very interesting way that up until that time had not been studied in that particular way. So she was still being objective as a scientist, but she was looking at what are the subjective experiences of those individuals. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. You're, you're in a sense, you're getting inside the minds of these individuals, um, not by superimposing a human, you know, I know what they're doing, you know, anthropomorphism, but by using the subjective experiences of those individuals and how they react to each other, but doing it objectively as a scientist. And then really understanding something in, inherently important about their social system and, in a sense, uncovering a mystery that we didn't know before which is really cool, kind of gives you little shivers on your back, right? So she's doing this in doing field work in Africa, which is not easy to do. And she's following the baboons for months on end. And I read this paper on friendship in baboons, and I thought, wow, this is how I want to approach studying animals. And I was very much, and still am, very much in favor of animal welfare and non-invasive studies of animal welfare of animals and so this seemed to me to be the best way because the way people were studying them to try to get it what did they see what did they hear was very invasive using you know um, electrodes put into their brain and cutting them up and doing all sorts you know and I didn't want to, the the research itself might be interesting but I did not want to do it so I thought this gives me a clue of what I want to do and I thought a little bit more deeply about it and then I went to see one of my advisors and I said to him as his professor Roper Tim Roper and I said I want to study animal consciousness and he said wow that's a big topic um, maybe we can break it down a little bit for you why don't you study primate cognition as a first step and um, so he suggested that I apply to graduate schools that had primate units the primate research going on. And one of them was the University of Sterling, which is where I went to. So that's how I got there. So animal consciousness, um, going from this very broad idea of like, wh what is the inner world of animals 
um, not just as species, but also as like individuals as they're adapting. How did that lead you, how did that journey lead you into now studying spatial cognition? Right, so I went from, with Professor Roper's suggestion, going from studying animal consciousness to spatial cognition as a first step because um, first I was just looking at primate cognition, what area did I want to look at? And it was sort of happenstance that I ended up doing an environmental enrichment project first for my PhD work um, because my first advisor um, went on sabbatical very unexpectedly. And I expected to be developing something much more ecologically relevant, maybe about foraging behavior, which is still spatial, but more focused on foraging behavior um, and on knowledge and memory, which might be spatial, but multiple other things. And then um, he went away, and my second advisor was left with me to, to advise me and to guide me, and he did only pretty much environmental enrichment studies. And so I, he said, well, why don't you do this? And we talked about different topics, and I wasn't really that interested in environmental enrichment at the time. Um, and I sort of like, oh, okay, I'll go and do this study. And it was like a six-month study. And, you know, I really liked working with the monkeys. Um, <laughs> and I kind of, you know, set up an experiment to do, but I wasn't wholeheartedly like, I love this, but I started reading the literature and doing a lot of reading because I didn't know primates and I didn't know environmental enrichment. And when in the UK at that time, now it's changed, but the UK, when you started a PhD, you had no coursework. You mm. just read. So you taught yourself an entire topic and you had to be very self-motivated because no one assigned this with to you. Your advisor might not sit and read it with you or talk it over with you, which mine did not. So I went to the library and I read and read and read and read and read and got tons of papers and organized them. So annotated bibliographies are a big help and were my guide for my life then. Um, and, um, and then I ran this project and I started to think about environmental enrichment. And while I sat there and watched the monkeys jumping from one branch to another, I started watching monkeys jumping around from one branch to the other in different substrates within the environment and thinking about how to ink what we would what we use as a phrase in, in environmental enrichment, how to increase psychological space. Um, and I thought, that's a really interesting idea because when we talk about increasing psychological space, when we talk about how do they use their environment, it's how do they perceive their environment. And I could do an environmental enrichment study looking at their, their understanding of their space. And how do they subdivide the space? And how do they want to make use of it? Um, so for instance, the monkeys that we were, what I was working with, cotton tops, in each room, each, there was a family in each big room, and uh, they, the room had a skylight. And when planes flew overhead, or birds flew overhead, the monkeys would give vocalizations, alarm vocalizations, and they would all run and they'd hide in the corners of the room where, because that was where no windows were, you know, and they would run and they clump together and they'd hide and they'd give all these vocalizations, but then they'd slowly come back out. So obviously they perceived that this skylight was something where danger could happen, even though I think in our facility we only had one monkey maybe that had been born in the wild. So... Oh. These are monkeys who are realizing that something that flies overhead, like a bird, like that would be their natural predator, is something to be afraid of. And yet they were still afraid of it even though they were captive born. So that was really interesting to me um, that these were, perhaps it was a learned behavior from that one monkey that got passed on to others. You never know because they can hear each other alarm calling and they hear the plane going overhead or they see it. And so they can be passed on in lots of different ways. But it was still fascinating to me that that what, what that meant, and the idea that, that, that they're living in this captive environment, the environment isn't going to change, this will be their whole life, these four walls, you know, and what are we going to do to make their lives better? And to me, the way you do that is you change the space on a regular basis, and that could be through changing the branches or the mesh and climbing frames that they have or different, it's not just about throwing food in. Um, their social environment will change, obviously, on a regular basis, 
because individuals will be born, some will get old enough that they want to move on and have to move on in captivity, you then take them out and you put them in another group or something. Um, but their physical environment's going to pretty much stay the same, and that's going to be a huge, it could be a huge um, pull on their welfare unless you do something about it. So I decided, well, what is it that they pay attention to in their environment? What is a landmark for them? What can we all then alter and make that into, in a sense, a game or a problem for them to solve? Because that's what they would do in the wild. Now, remember, at this time, of course, I hadn't yet been in the wild. I'd only been in captivity. Just, oh, I've been seeing the animals in captivity. So I could only imagine reading papers what it was like for these monkeys in the wild. And I read lots and lots of papers by a colleague called Paul Garber, who had done tons and tons of work on tamarins. And he was the kind of tamarind person. There were a couple of people who studied them also in, in the wild, but he'd probably been out there the longest in the field. So I read lots of his papers and then very luckily ended up meeting him at conferences and then ended up working with him in the wild in, in Amazonia and Peru and doing other field work. So. Wow. So then that interest in animal enrichment, animal, um, animal welfare, led into your current research area of spatial cognition. Yeah, so my first, so I did field work. Um, so I did my, my PhD was first looking at what, are, what landmarks would they pay attention to and what is the definition of spatial cognition versus other forms of cognition or, you know, could you find cognition in these primates, um, in these small tamarins? And people told me, well, you know, their brain's the size of um, peanuts, you know, <laughs> walnuts or something. You know, they're not very bright, which is not true. Um, but, you know, they were like, well, compare them to a chimpanzee. Chimpanzees can do this in two seconds. And I was like, well, but let's see what these guys can do. And so I designed a series of experiments using what is a sort of foraging board of some kind where you put landmarks on the outside and you can manipulate where those landmarks are located and then you have food items hidden in relation to those landmarks and then you can shift those landmarks, you can rotate them, you can move them side to side or up and down and then through that you can see whether or not they're paying attention to the landmarks and not using what we would think of as distal cues like the room cues. Um, because if they're using the room cues, then they'll go to the wrong places, right? Because yeah. if you're shifting them. So so he's using a kind of Olten maze kind of task, if you're familiar with that, with the monkeys. And the, that was using mice, I think, mice or rats, I think it was mice. And then they put them into these eight-arm radial mazes and could rotate the maze or could rotate the room cues because they had a big... Um, cloth around it or something and so this was my version of doing that um, in a sense and looking at what landmarks could they use and could they use them relationally which was my definition of the you know this computation of using these landmarks relationally to be able to call it cognition so that was interesting when I had my what they call viva voce the uh, oral exam for my PhD um, my external examiner so in in the UK you don't know whether or not you passed until you sit your viva voce. So you could put in all these years of work. It's not like in the United States where you're like prepared and like wow. you go in there and you kind of know you're gonna pass. You still have to do the yeah. oral exam. Oh. This, you have an ex internal examiner, an external examiner, and then they make the decision, right? So that's very hard. And there were some people in my department, some grad students. Uh, in fact, the one who had just gone before me had not passed, and so I was anxious. Oh, that's um, heartbreaking. Yeah, so it is hard. Um, so I went in there, and my external, I, I passed, but, you know, I <laughs> thankfully, um, I had some changes to do to my thesis, which almost everybody does, so it wasn't so bad. But um, the external examiner said to me, well, I know you're calling this cognition, and remember this was years ago, we now have a journal called Animal Cognition and people don't mind talking about animal cognition, primate cognition, but when he said to me, he said, you cannot use the word cognition in your thesis. Wow. And I tried to argue that, and, he, and it was in the notes, and he said, no, no, you have to take the word cognition out, you have to use relational um, you know, thinking or something. So. So I had to take that out throughout my entire thesis, which is like the biggest change that I had to make, which is really annoying. But after the, it, after the vibe was over, I said to him, I said, why did you make such a fuss about me using the word cognition when you've actually published a book called Animal Cognition? 
And he said, well, if you brought that up in the Viva Voce, you could have argued me down. Wow. He's just, he's just a bit of a... Whatever. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I know. So he was just playing games, I think. Um, but anyway, so I then went on to do this field work with Paul Garber where we wanted to look at, you know, because he'd, he'd done all these studies on, on spatial memory and spatial navigation, and he'd called it cognition, but I said, well, you can't call it cognition unless we really have any have evidence of it being cognitive. So can we set up some studies to do this? And we ended up creating, doing experiments in the field. And um, we had a great time. It was like it was like being on summer camp other than being, you know, covered in mosquitoes and mud and, mm-hmm. you know, getting up at 430 in the morning and eating uncooked, you know, insect laden you know, food and stuff like that. It was, that was bad, but, you know, but it was all part of the fun of being there. And we designed these experiments in the field that his PhD students um, took on later. They took on the paradigm and then they expanded it. And there's still people who are using that paradigm, which is really cool. I like, I always like to see that, that there's, there's one of his Brazilian, now he's a professor, um, but, uh, you know, he's, uh, was Paul's PhD student who's using that paradigm. And then it really encouraged other people to do experimental field work. So it's a nice, it was a nice outcome just from that point of view. But, but this, just the study of cognition in the field was really interesting. Um, and, um, and then when I got my first teaching job, why I went into studying, I guess the question was really like, why spatial cognition, why virtual reality? And why I studied using started using virtual reality was I started teaching at um, a university in Brooklyn, which is part of NYU, but it was the section of that was part of the engineering section of the university. And the um, students there were, of course, engineers and computer scientists. And I thought, well, I'll make use of what their knowledge is. Yeah. And because I didn't have money to go and do field work again, I thought, well, I can't. I don't have a primate unit here. But I can take like a computer program, go to a com- primate lab, and I could replicate a field for these animals. And then I can look at and I can manipulate variables. But even more importantly to me was I realized that when I was in studying animals in captivity, I could control their vari- what they were looking at in the field. I had no control over what they were looking at, but they were doing amazing things. How could I put those two things together? And so that's where the idea of virtual reality came. How do you develop research questions? Oh, that's a really good question. I love thinking up research questions, and I'm often inspired by something somebody says. Sometimes I'm reading a novel. Sometimes I read a poem. Um, I think that the more students read really broadly, not just in their field, but the more liberally educated they are, the better they are at being whether they're scientists, engineers, whatever it is they want to be. And I know that sounds really cliched, but nowadays um, education is so tunnel focused. Like you want to be a psychologist, take all psychology courses, you know, forget taking a literature course or something. But how do we really learn about uh, how other people feel? Well, we can go and interview them, but what if you can't get to the other side of the world to interview them? You read their books, you read their writing, you read their poetry, you study their culture. Um, so anthropology and you know p- philosophy of other cultures, all of those ways in which we get um, to understand something about another person's perspective is really important. And I think literature is a is a very important area for imagination. Um, I was thinking about this a lot recently. When I was a kid, I used to daydream a lot, and I think that. That my mom used to yell at me a lot because I'd sit and I'd daydream, and she's like, "You're late for school. You're supposed to be in putting your shoes on." And I was sitting there thinking about I don't know what. And I think daydreaming is a really important thing for kids to do and for people to do. And we don't have that very much. We don't have time for that. Just to let our brains, our ideas, our minds to just go off in different tangents and think, um, because we're so focused on technology and what we have to do and being productive, um, and. So how do I get my research ideas? I think it's from all different walks of life, all different areas. But I'd also say that my mom is a great inspiration. Um, she's a psychologist as well. And so we often talk about research ideas. And um, 
she's a developmental psychologist and so she's always tried to push me towards developmental and I've always pushed back and said no I want to study animals and now I'm very interested in development but not in the same way that she perhaps is or was um but we all, always talk about research and we share ideas. So there's a lot of different ways. And then students, like for instance, I just was working with two students this afternoon or this morning and early afternoon coming in with different ideas and they say something and I'll say, well, what about this? And what about this? And we use it as a way to spur things on and I'll come up with ideas for them and they'll say something and then I'll say something back. And, and then we have a great back and forth. Um, and then I wish I had, you know, there was, you know, another one of me who could go off and do this research because I think, oh, that's really a good idea. I really like that. I hope the student takes this and runs with it. Um, and sometimes they do, and it's great. Yeah, so it's a very broad-reaching process then from everything from literature to culture to talking to other psychologists to try and figure out mm-hmm. what questions it is that you're going to ask next. Hello, this is Zenon speaking to you from May of 2021. We recorded this interview in early February of 2020. So during this next answer, you'll hear Dr. Dolans saying that coronavirus is about to be a big thing for the next couple months. That isn't her being very behind as it would be if she said that today. This is actually her being very ahead because she said this before anyone was aware that coronavirus was going to become the pandemic that it has. And without further ado, back to our interview with Dr. Dolans. Um, so speaking of exciting research questions, what project have you worked on that um, you're the most proud of? So when I finished my PhD and I had, um, I taught at a college as a visiting assistant professor and I finished that time. Then I was looking for another academic position and I ended up being hired by the Humane Society of the United States. So I was not, it was not an academic job. Um, and I was working obviously in animal welfare. And one of the reasons that I think they hired me was <laughs> that they wanted a primatologist to work on the issue of chimpanzees being kept in captivity who had been bred for HIV research. So there was a huge push to breed tons and tons of chimpanzees when HIV research was like really the big thing. Now, of course, it's coronavirus is going to be the biggest thing for people to pay attention to, at least for a couple of months. But the time HIV was the big area, and they thought they could develop models with chimpanzees. And they bred lots, and then they found out that chimpanzees are infected by HIV, but don't show the same symptoms that humans do, and it's not a deadly disease for them. So they had all these chimpanzees that they couldn't really use as models. So they developed um, uh, monkey models, so for SIV, simian, basically simian um, immune virus. And then um, the chimps were just there, like what were they going to do with them? And they're very expensive to keep, and of course they're very, very intelligent animals, and you can't just put them in a little tiny cage and kind of ignore them. So what were they going to do with them all? And we, people in the welfare community said, well, retire them, put them into sanctuaries. And, you know, now you've bred them. Now that the government literally has supported these facilities to breed these chimps, they are now ethically responsible to take care of them and to put them in a good welfare situation and to let them live out their lives in a good way. Um, and so there was a lot within a lot of people. There was a lot of pull and push in the in the science community that well, why can't we use the chimpanzees for other research? You know, an invasive research on something else, on cancer or whatever it is. So obviously that was being done, um, but there were still lots of chimps that just weren't being used, and some were being used for behavioral research and cognitive research. But there's still all these surplus chimps, basically you know, surplus to the need. Um, So when I was working for the Humane Society, we had a group who were working with um, a number of other welfare organizations and animal rights groups. And so we started this effort to try to get senators and congressional representatives on board. And we got some who said, yes, let's put this through. Let's try to get a bill created that would create chimpanzee sanctuaries. Um, And then it got down to the point that NIH and some of the other um, 
internal science organizations and agencies said, we will not retire chimpanzees. And this was the this was their sticking point. We will not retire chimpanzees unless we can bring them back into the system if we decide we need them. And the animal rights groups and most of the animal welfare groups dropped out and said, we're not going to have that. Once you retire a chimpanzee, it has to stay in the sanctuary. And I said to them, look, the chimps that they're going to retire are going to be the old ones, the sick ones, the ones that have our behavioral problems the ones that they really don't want anymore. They're never going to bring them back in. They don't want a chimp that screams and bites and throws poo and stuff. They don't want that. They don't want one that's had half its liver removed because of you know other research. They don't want one that's been infected with HIV already. They don't want, they're not going to use those for other tests. They're going to be happy to retire them. So they're never going to call them back. I said, they're just putting it in there because that will keep their constituents happy. So let it go. And they could not take those organizations, those um, couldn't take the pragmatic view. So I was told by the Humane Society, okay, it's dead in the water, we're not going anywhere. And so I got together with the lawyer who was working on this, the lawyer in um, NHSUS, and we put together a petition and we got more than a thousand scientists to sign the petition saying that we requested NIH and the federal government to retire these chimpanzees. And I brought it to the vice president for my section, and I said, look, we have more than a 1,000 scientists across the United States and some across the world who are in all different fields, and they say retired chimpanzees. Let's take this back to the senators and congressional reps and see if they will push this through. And we did it. So that petition... And my working after hours, when I was told not to do it, I did it anyway, but I did it in my time, so my boss couldn't claim that they'd paid me to do this. I did it in my time. And then we got the chimp bill put together. We got the other organizations back on target, and we got the bill passed. And now there are two chimpanzee sanctuaries, maybe three. I haven't checked recently, but there are um, hundreds and hundreds of chimps now who have better lives and who are not living in captivity. And will, I'm sure that they will never be called back into research, even though I think that's still a clause in the, in the bill. So that's the thing that I'm most proud of, because I feel like I really made a difference. Absolutely, that is incredible. Your commitment to the dignity of the animals shows in all of your answers. Like, it's a really beautiful thing, and a very- yeah, thank you. It's a very- um, <laughs> I'm flushing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very inspiring thing to see. You know, I feel like often we get this um, idea of scientists as cynical or the evil lab coats, you know, but um, <laughs> that story just shows like the power of the scientific community in social change, in change for just a better, less mm-hmm. pain, less suffering in the world. And I have to put it a plug for scientists in general. When you talk to them, they're very objective about their field. But if you talk to them about why do they do their work, which I'm sure you're getting at um, in what you're doing now, interviewing people, they're very passionate and they feel like they're helping people. Um, even people who, even scientists who are perhaps causing pain in animals, they still feel like they're doing this for the betterment of humanity. They're not doing it because they want to harm animals. And I always think that's really important to say. So even when, you know, I was at odds with these people, I still recognize that they felt really strongly in their position that they were doing something good, that they weren't just out, that I didn't think of them as evil people, right? And even if they thought I was being evil, they, <laughs> I didn't think of them as being evil. No, I agree. That is an important narrative to add to that um, as well. Uh, so what research are you working on right now? Uh, well, um, Zenon got to hear about it in class, but I'm working on um, uh, the uh, virtual using virtual reality with chimpanzees and well, all sorts of apes. Now we're, we've expanded to bonobos, and we're using orangutans and monkeys. Um, and um, I've also done field work in Madagascar with lemurs, and so some of that research I'm still, even though it was years ago, I'm still writing that up because it's. It's time-consuming to get to all of those things. but um, And then I'm doing a conservation education project in Madagascar that I do distantly, although I used to do it 
when I was there, but I haven't been there in a while. So I hire other people to go and do that part. And then I run conservation education workshops in schools in Detroit. So I guess those are my three main projects. What was your personal experience like getting to travel for your research? You've mentioned Peru and Madagascar. Could you elaborate on those experiences? Sure. Um, the very first time I went to do fieldwork in Peru, I was terrified. You know, was, I was excited and I was terrified. I think it's always, it's always a combination of both whenever I go to do fieldwork. Um, it's so exciting to be able to go to these other places that I probably would never go. I mean, I wouldn't go on vacation to these places. It's not, I don't have that, don't have that kind of money and I don't have that kind of, I don't know, inspiration to go and see what it's like in those places without this. But I would, but having been there, it opened up my eyes and made me into a different person um, because I understand what it's like for people who have no money, no um no food, not enough food, they have no medical care, you know, very little to live on and no infrastructure in their in their community or in their country to to rely on. Um, and it makes me think what it's like always for people across the world and then reflect back on how lucky I am in a sense, but and but also every time I take a drink of clean water that I have access to clean water, that if I decide to throw a load of laundry in the washing machine, I can just do, I don't have to go down to the river and literally try to rub things on rocks and try to get dirt out or, you know, like I have so much, so many things that I can do and think about, whereas people are living literally hand to mouth. So it, it really changed my perspective on what it means to be a person in a developed country and what my responsibilities are to people across the world. Um, so that changed me. Um, the, the literal like experience of being in those places, of like being in the forest, for instance, the first time I was in the forest in Peru, um, it was, you know, it was extraordinary. Um, so we arrived in a place called Iquitos in Amazonian Peru, and the first couple days, um, you're you're in the basin, the Amazonian basin, and the humidity is you're below sea level, wow. and the humidity is I don't know over a hundred percent, or if that's possible, it's, it's it's really humid and it's really hot, um, and the sun rises almost exactly at six in the morning and sets almost exactly at six at night, and it's such a different experience than other places, and you have this environment of people rushing and doing things and they have their own way of, of focusing and then we get on a boat and a canoe and we were canoed out to an island got off and we're in this quiet forest and it's a lush green forest very muddy very humid and we're on an island in the middle of the Amazon River and no way of communicating with anybody to get off the island if we wanted to we're just on this island. No fresh water. We had to bring things to clean the water. No electricity. We'd bring batteries. No medicine other than what we brought with us. Um, so there we were. And the environment is absolutely beautiful. There's sounds that you just never hear. You you know, we don't listen these days. You know, we're wearing headphones. We have music. We have all this stuff. But when you're in the forest, there's this hush and then there's sounds overlaid that are different animals and insects and birds and um, in the mornings there was a bird that would call really loudly and there night there would be other birds and then there'd be really loud sounds and things that sounded like they were shrieking at each other and things that sounded like they were laughing and um, you know it was it was like a cacophony, like an orchestra playing, and it was fantastic. Um, the field house where I stayed, there were vampire bats living in the walls, um, which I thought was hysterical. I mean, they didn't, you know, they, I wasn't scared of them at all. I did meet one at one point in some other point in the forest, but um, that's a whole other story, which is kind of funny. But the, but the vampire bats, you know, just as I was going to be going to sleep, because you go to bed early there, because the 
no light. And if you're getting up at 4.30 in the morning, you want to go to bed at like 8 and you're walking around all day. So like, you know, 8 o'clock at night, I'm going to bed and the vampire bats are just waking up and in the walls I can hear them shrieking and, you know, banging into things and and they're very noisy and they have very intense social interactions. (laughs) And all night long they'd be shrieking and yelling and then disappear and then come back and shrieking. and, And it was just... I was, I was, I really kind of enjoyed it. It was like I put my hand on the wall, and you know, I just kind of feel like, you know, hi, buddies. You know, you're in there as long as you're inside there, not in here. You know, it's good. Um, there were ant colonies living in the building that were always having these wars that I would follow. So you know, big red ants and small red ants would fight each other, and small black ants would come in and fight the small black ants, and they there was a, there were these partially built bathrooms in the field house that no running water or anything in there couldn't use them but it was always interesting to see the ants colonies coming out and attacking each other and who was winning that day and mm-hmm. so that was that was kind of fun and then trying to take a bath where they had these little ponds that were left over water from when the island flooded and they were filled with with um, electric eel um, with caiman um, with the anacondas there were anacondas in there um, so we did not want to go into the water. So we built some sticks across the water with like a little bridge. You could stand there and just pour water over you, which got really slippery to try to, when you're standing on it, um, and wash your hair. And that was always amusing at the end of the day in the darkness, trying to go out there and feel your way and like not fall off and then trying to have a bath. Um, uh, and the villagers from across there would sometimes come down and sit at the edge of the coach and yell things at me, which was not very polite. But I just like <laughs> wave and pretend it was perfectly fine that I was standing there in a swimsuit in the semi-darkness trying to have a bath with, you know, five men yelling thing, rude things at me. And I was like, okay, yeah, fine, really nice to see you too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there was always funny things. Um, my field guide, when the Cayman showed up one morning um, and they were just spread out across the edge of the coach, there was like three of them. And he, I think he talked about this with Paul Garber and, and we had to walk past them. And he, he said to me, my field guide said to me, he said, don't worry. He said, they're not interested in you unless it's the breeding season. And so I happily walked up and down this path and I said, when is the breeding season? He was like, I don't know. <laughs> After I'd done this for days, it's like, oh, thanks, that's great. That, yeah, so like I could have been chased by a caiman at any moment, um, you know. And and one of the things like we saw a baby vulture that the mom had put it at the base of a tree, and she would come down and feed it. And this vulture was the ugliest looking thing I'd ever seen, covered in these yellow scrawny feathers and insects everywhere. And the mom would come down and screech, and then we'd go away and watch it, and she'd feed it whatever rotten meat she'd found, and then fly away again. This this baby just sat there going, making this horrible noise. Um, so there were just fantastic things and funny things and walking in the forest and losing my boot in the mud and then falling backwards and you might feel guide and Paul laughing at me for 10 minutes before they helped me out of the mud you know <laughs> stuff like that so you know there's just like really funny things that happened um, wow. it was a lot of fun that sounds so like vulnerable and invigorating and humbling like I can't imagine having an experience like that. Like how, what a once in a lifetime opportunity. Mm-hmm. That is so cool. I'm so glad that we got to hear definitely. all of, the, you can tell you read a lot, <laughs> but <laughs> you were definitely painting a picture for us. I was just, I just caught a flight back from, from South America. Um, <laughs> so we've heard a lot about animal welfare, spatial cognition and uh, primates and how all this applies to your overall goal of looking at animal consciousness. Um, how might this research be applied to humans? So it's very, it could be very much applied to humans. I don't necessarily do the application myself, although I'm, I have multiple projects that I would like to do, but I need another lifetime to do them all. But um, yeah, so I do study humans when I, uh, comparatively with the primates. So I always test humans um, and then children and adults. And um, so, for instance, the Virtual Reality Project, we're testing humans here in Michigan, children and adults. And then I have my colleague who's in the Congo who's testing children in two different tribes, the Manbenjele and the Bantu. So we have these cross-cultural comparisons as well as the 
like interspecies comparisons. Um, so there is that, just looking at it in terms of anthropology, but if you mean applied in terms of like, you know, how can we actually help humans rather than just understand humans? What can we do to help humans in, in understanding spatial cognition? And particularly if we're looking at um, uh, spatial cognitive abilities. So there are people who have spatial cognitive deficits. And it doesn't, in fact, I don't even know if it has a name. I mean, like, there's dyslexia, there's dyscalculia. But I don't know if there's a dyspatia or something. I've never heard a term like that. But there, there is a, there are people who walk out of their front doors and then they don't know where they're going. And that could just be their regular lack of spatial ability. But there's also children who are born with that, and those kinds of lack of spatial abilities are often correlated with um, mathematical in like lacks, you know, so they're lacking in, you know, the, the, well, they have dyscalculia of different kinds, but it could be a, like a geometric or a distance um, or understanding of numbers in lots of different ways because numbers and number lines are spatial. So if you think of 0 to 100 on a number line, when we think of number lines, they're spaced very evenly, right? But if you actually ask a, a three-year-old, two- or five-year-old to write out the numbers between 1 and 10, one, two, three, four will be very far apart, and then the other numbers will be very close together, right? And it's it's what's referred to as Weber's law. So you have this sense of you have an it's your representation of those numbers. You're much more familiar with those numbers. You represent them as having bigger spaces around them. If you're not very familiar with those numbers, they are having smaller and smaller spaces, right? So numerical understanding is also a spatial understanding. And in fact, parts of the brain that deal with numerical processing are often um, control, for instance, our arm movements, right? So that's spatial. How far can you reach in the world? And how many fingers and so on? Those are, um, it's all part of a, a numerical spatial relationship that's together. So um, one of the things that either I or somebody else could do is to study um, people with spatial deficits, especially developmentally with children, and look at that relationship with mathematical deficits, but how would you entrain? In other words, how can you train kids to have better spatial abilities? And you could do that, I think, using VR, virtual reality. And if you do that, does it then have an impact on their mathematical abilities? And I think it probably would. So it's a project that I would love to do. And I have designed it in my head a million times mm -hmm. and talked to people about it. Um, we'd need neuroscientists to work with us on it. The other area that's a very applicable area is older people with Alzheimer's or for forms of dementia. One of the first signs of that is spatial lack of spatial abilities or decrease in spatial abilities, so they often get lost. They can't remember how to go from one street to the next. They can't give directions, and that's before they start losing words. They start losing, you know, other areas of their cognitive abilities. Spatial goes down first, so it's a good insight. It's a good indicator for neuropsychologists to use spatial cognitive tasks, and then again, could you use that to enhance their cognitive abilities to keep them from going into decline further? So um, one of the things that I'm interested in doing is using virtual reality to test older chimpanzees to look at spatial cognitive decline in older chimpanzees in their natural way and look at that and model that compared to human decline if they don't have Alzheimer's and then look at that in Alzheimer's and see what can we do to now stop those declines. Yeah. Well, that's very interesting thinking yeah. about... Um, what you mentioned first about the connection to math and like how we physically manifest space. It's interesting. I've never thought about something that's abstract as math. I'm like, well, we just made that up, you know, um, having those physical implications. Um, it's that's a, really interesting. It's a, an area of psychology called embodied cognition that's becoming much more interest, you know, like prevalent and um, that kind of idea, that, that perspective. I'll have to read more about that. Definitely. Yeah. What's your vision, purpose, or goal as a psychologist? So I'd say my vision, I'll, I'll get to the others, but my vision is overall, and this hasn't changed from when I was an undergraduate, um, is to have people literally treat each other better. 
and why I wanted to study animal consciousness was I thought if you can show humans that non-humans are sentient feeling beings, shouldn't they have to treat each other even better than that? And unfortunately, the world has gone the other direction, as far as I can see. But um, but I don't think it even matters. I don't, I don't think people care. Like, they wouldn't care if they slaughtered a cow if they thought it had sentience. It doesn't matter to them. When I've gotten to that point, maybe it's cynical. So my vision still is, can we make this world a better place and make people kinder to each other and kinder to other living beings? Um, and that that's kind of sounds very cliched, but that is a vision. Um, and I'd say that my immediate goals in psychology are to um, really better understand what capacities non-humans have, and that could be their emotional states, their capacity for empathy, their capacity for love, their capacity for cognitive abilities, um, you know, in, in all these different aspects, because they're worlds unto themselves that are, that we don't understand. And if we can do that for a non-human who's non-verbal, if we can use those methods, then for humans, we can understand humans better, especially ones who perhaps are non-verbal. So people who are not able to express themselves because they are infants or because for some physical disability, that doesn't mean that they don't think and feel. So we could have a way of communicating to them. And um, the idea of being closed up inside of yourself when you are a fully competent, mentally competent human being sounds to me like a terrifying thing. So being able to use this with non-humans and then being able to use that for not for humans and being able to understand and give them a chance to express themselves I think would be a fantastic thing to do. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's a very, um, I don't know, lofty set of goals. <laughs> I think that's definitely something that would get you out of bed in the morning, though. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Dolans, and then we will see you back not that long to finish up with the second half of this interview. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Dolans, for talking to us about animal cognition and about all of this cool research work you've done, and we cannot wait to talk to you again. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media on Facebook at Preoccupied or on Twitter or Instagram at Preoc Podcast. Um, you can send us an email with any referrals or just say hi at uh, hosts at preoccupied.com. Don't forget the hyphen. Don't forget the hyphen. You know that by now. Yep. Well, who knows? Maybe this is the first episode someone's listening to. And if it is, welcome to the show. You can also visit our website at pre-occupied.com. And we will see you next time on Preoccupied. I know, right? Get that beatboxing in. Yeah. I was just thinking while you were um getting ready, you were like, hold on, I got it. You look like you're about to start freestyle. You were like right okay <laughs> i was ready for you to drop it great <laughs>